Okay, hello everyone. Thank you so much for joining us uh, both live and those who will join us uh, to listen as a podcast. Actually, I uh, a lot lots of folks ask why we're doing it live and then upload it as a podcast instead of recording everything and then uh, sharing as a podcast only. And personally, I just love this beautiful chaos of unfiltered live broadcast when anything can happen and um, personally that's my favorite way to go about this show as well i don't know well i know that it's stressful oftentimes but also this is uh, such a beautiful chaos in this yeah um, in, in the way doing that And the other thing is that more people can listen to us because people who tune in on Twitter spaces, I know that there's a lot of fans of Twitter spaces as a means of communication in general can listen to us and we can get our message out and educate and, you know, bring things to the light to people here and in podcast if people want to do that in their own time. So I actually love both the chaos and the reach of doing both. Yeah. And, uh, well, how... How have you been doing since the last time we tuned in? Yeah, I mean, last time was oh, days. Uh, still confused with days. But uh, last time was Monday. I think um, I think may- maybe this is something everyone is slowly starting to feel. It's been, what, now, 80-plus days? It was one oh. one big day that I know. Wouldn't, won't fucking end. <laughs> It's true. That's how I But... feel it. I feel like things, it, probably, I don't know, terrible to say, but things are like slowing down a bit and attention is like slowing down a bit and everything, it, it feels like things are slowing down, which they aren't because obviously it's very different for people who are like in Ukraine and in the middle of this um, as opposed to like others like us who are maybe outside. But um, it just, I think, and you said this a little bit as well, but I'm feeling it too. It's just like, having the time and this like the fact that everything is slowing down is just making some feelings and thoughts settle in and you know feeling just super tired and a little bit burnt out and not very creatively geared towards stopping everything right yeah. now I don't and, know. Uh, it's a it's a similar shared feeling uh, naturally uh, of burnout but My also question was, why on Monday we haven't had a single word uh, about Eurovision and Ukraine? <laughs> Much deserved, glorious victory because on the merit of the of the song, but also because of this enormous wave of solidarity. And, you know, this is something that I keep uh, coming back to it because it was such a nice moment and I know that a lot it it mattered and I, I know that you even posted um, a bit of explanation of, on why your vision actually mattered and that win was more than just a song contest but yeah for me personally it was a such a powerful reminder because we usually and often mention the failure of a lot of Western and foreign governments when it comes to solidarity with Ukraine Yep. And this is something that we vent and vent our frustration oftentimes. But that night was a powerful reminder for me and an illustration that there is a big difference between how regular people feel about Ukraine and how they manifest this strong solidarity. 
and there are governments that basically do such a crappy job yeah. at the same thing. And the other thing, the reason I did the post that I did, A, I was getting loads of questions about like, oh, what's that instrument uh, the guy is playing? What's that outfit the other person is wearing? And I read somewhere that like for culture to be appreciated and not appropriated, you need to explain it and you need to like contextualize it and you need to like make people understand why there are certain elements that are included or you know so on and so forth and i thought that was like no one was doing it at that time so it was quite interesting uh to also i didn't know these things i wrote about by the way just fyi research and like kvitka who was here on our podcast earlier helped me because you know the two the malanka the two guys in costumes that were on the sides i like could not figure out who they were for a very long time Uh, but it was fun it was a fun little research project Now I think we'll go to our featured Ukrainian, Sasha. Hey, our ground rule that we do not introduce our featured Ukrainians and allow them to introduce themselves. So please uh, tell us who you are, what you do, and how your life has been since uh, since the genocide started. Thank you so much. Um... I'm a little nervous. This is also my first time doing something like this. I'm very honored to to have been invited here. It's um, it's a great pleasure, and I'm very excited to be here today. So thank you. Uh, my name is Sasha Boychenko. I am from Ukraine, from the city of Chernivtsi. Mm, I have been living in Portugal for the past couple of years, and I am. A researcher at um, a European NGO called Victim Support Europe, and I also studied migration, which is kind of like a big general passion topic of my life. And recently founded my own my own uh, NGO here in Lisbon, in Portugal, with a colleague of mine that is aimed at social inclusion of people with various backgrounds, including migrants. Um, These have been some of the most difficult days, weeks, and months of my life, as I'm sure for every Ukrainian, really. Uh, It has been very difficult to be far away from home at this time. My parents remain at home in Chernivtsi, where... They are, let's say, relatively safe within Ukraine, but it's not like there is a safe place there at the moment. So it's been very hard to to live through this. And I've mostly kind of channeled my energy whenever I have it at um, raising awareness and communicating with English-speaking audiences and also just helping Ukrainians who are arriving here in Portugal. So that's kind of what I've been up to recently. That's amazing. And thank you so much for finding the time to talk to us as well, because I know every Ukrainian right now is extremely busy with doing a lot of things from helping family to helping people in general and, and, and doing, you know, the work that you've been doing on your accounts. But, you know, 
I actually came across your account before the war kicked off, the, the, the full-scale invasion, not the war. Of course, it's been going on for quite some time now, but the latest iteration. And I remember that you, me, Judith, Timoshenko, and a couple of others were, you know, realized that there was so little content in English for foreign audiences about Ukraine before that it was like a wave of stuff that that started, you know, appearing in terms of educational uh, content. But I just wanted to ask you your your sort of opinion or perspective or like why back then, I think your post, I was just checking today, the, the most viral one that, that I sort of came across was the uh, but why would Russia want to invade Ukraine? Right. I was just wondering what 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 kind of pushed you to to do that, and what motivated you? Because it was you know obviously back before everything became right. <laughs> yeah. So things had been escalating for a while, and I was having conversations with people in which I realized that people kind of had very little knowledge about what was going on, which of course. On the one hand, it's normal, you know, I think it's it's completely okay. It's impossible to keep up with every single thing that is going on in the world. We're constantly bombarded with a lot of information and I have a lot of a lot of empathy for that. But I was very surprised to find out how little people actually knew. Because for me, obviously, for someone who constantly revolves in these contexts, certain things just seem so obvious that I thought they didn't need explaining. And then I found out with great surprise that they did need explaining. And it was actually Yulia Tymoshenko, whom you've mentioned, who wrote uh, a different but a similar post that went viral. And when I saw how much need there was for that, how, how great the reaction had been to that, I thought, well, I can also write down some of these like sort of basic thoughts, at least, and I could not have imagined that it would get so much attention. It was, um, I do not have many followers on Instagram. This is not something that I do much or used to do much on social media. It was more targeted, I guess, at like my friends who are quite international, but still, you know, a friend group or like acquaintances, people I know. And I still felt like I was explaining some very obvious things, but the feedback I got was quite overwhelmingly positive and people were yeah thanking me for explaining things and I felt a bit like I don't know it 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 surprised me it surprised me that there was a need for that and then I thought okay well at least I can be useful in this way you know and then I tried to to do some more similar things afterwards although I just have to add that that post now seems extremely naive (laughs) looking back at it you know I think I was still putting things very mildly and um, we all learned just how much worse things actually were and were about to get. Uh, But one of the things that I really appreciate about you and your um, existence and your explaining uh, on that you do online is that when you look back at some of the posts that you did on Instagram um, in uh, before the reinvasion, before February twenty fourth, they are so still visionary in uh, in terms of that the things that you mentioned and the things that you explained are very still relevant to this day. And I I pinned another uh, tweet of yours that basically um, repackaged an Instagram post about how uh, to talk 
to your Ukrainian friends. And uh, most of the stuff that you mentioned there is uh, still relevant, despite that you posted it, I think, sometime uh, in January. And one of my favorite bits is um, that I, I, w- I would just, you know, mark forever. Don't treat Ukrainians as your personal Google, which uh, hilarious and so, so true. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's, right. it's still happening every day. But I wanted to do a quick follow up on your explaining because another feature about you that you that I really um, uh, appreciate is that you also do explaining in other languages that than English. So could you tell us about that a bit, but most of all experience, how it's different when you try to communicate uh, uh, these explainers to audiences that are not English speaking? Because as I suspect, there is much more job to be done there than when it comes to English explaining. Right. So the initial wave of basically that first post that got translated into many different languages. It was just this beautiful, spontaneous thing that happened. And it was basically people living, Ukrainians mostly living in different countries who reached out to me and were like, hey, could we translate your post? And I was like, yes, of course, please. Um, And then later on, I also focused more on communicating in Portuguese because I live in Portugal and... I luckily also speak Portuguese and that, I have to say, that is much more difficult. Uh, it has been much more difficult for various reasons. So the most simple one, of course, is just like the language itself. I speak English better than I do Portuguese, but also kind of the audience with which you try to interact. And what I found out uh, to quite some surprise and sadness is that the Russian propaganda has been wildly successful in Portugal and no one really questioned it until recently. And people, just regular people who read regular newspapers were subject to all this propaganda and some ideas became very internalized in a regular Portuguese person's brain. And it can be very frustrating to to, <clears throat> yeah. um, to have a to have a conversation with someone who like genuinely believes because they have read many times over the past two years in the newspapers that years in the newspapers that you know Ukraine is full of neo-Nazi training camps and that we have a civil war going on and people just like reproduce the these things. Yeah. But in at least my like English speaking circles, those things had mostly been debunked, you know, because there was so much work done to like counter um, all this disinformation. But in Portugal, it really all lagged quite behind. So yeah. it's, it's, more, it's more frustrating, but I also think it's um, perhaps more impactful, which is why I still try to like not give up on that. Yeah. And, you know, like partially, I, I feel like there's been just much more investment into like countering some of these myths in in English speaking countries, but not anywhere else. Like, you know, we we tend to forget that there's a lot of <laughs> other languages and 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 markets and audiences out there. And I think actually that the Kremlin machine, propaganda machine, has has not forgotten that and has continued working across the world um, in different languages and has been quite successful. So that's super, super interesting. Um, 
I guess my next question to you would be, it's just that, you know, it it will sound funny uh, the way I was about to frame it, but at different points in time in the past couple of months, different things have annoyed us Ukrainians in terms of what we have been hearing and seeing um, in our outside circles, in our, you know, day-to-day life or on the internet or in in the media. And I was just wondering um, your thoughts on like, the latest thing you would like to question, like call out um, from from what you're hearing around the narrative around the war in Ukraine and Ukraine in general? That is an excellent question, to which I perhaps don't have like a, a ready to go excellent answer. But I think mm, so. The first thing that comes to mind is. I think it's, that is not new, but that persistently keeps happening. And I think it's also fitting to mention it in this specific context with, with you here. Um, that is, people keep having opinions about what Ukraine and Ukrainians should do and how we should act and uh, what decisions we should make, both you know, like politically, militarily, and people inside Ukraine but also people who have been forced to flee Ukraine and also people like us who are Ukrainians and live outside of Ukraine. I think there's kind of a continuous, I don't know, expectation on us. There's also, yeah, people just have opinions about about how we should be or what we should do. And it doesn't seem to to cease existing. And I'm, I never had a lot of patience for it, but I think... Especially now, it, it just seems quite outdated at this point. Uh, this is uh, the, the very reason behind this initiative. This frustration that hasn't started uh, 84 days ago, but has been going on for many decades, where a conversation about Ukraine that primarily still happening in many Western parts of the world uh, keeps happening without Ukrainians being present at all. And uh, for some people, this is a very natural thing to go about this thing. And sometimes I'm very perplexed about why it's even you know, considered okay thing to do. Because when people talk, especially in the West, especially in the West where all the uh, identity issues are so sensitive and people kind of learn to um, accept the fact that you cannot talk about uh, the issues linked to some community without representation from that community. And it's not appropriate at all. But the same rule somehow is not still applied to Ukrainians. And you still can have and our uh, podcast explaining Ukraine, where just like two, three Western people do that without a simple comp- a single contribution from Ukrainian. And uh, yeah, this is really fucked up, people. Um, Sasha, I wanted to ask you um, about something that uh, when I looked at one of your posts on Instagram um, about how we can center discussions about Ukraine through Ukrainian perspective. And this is something that we both talk and think about it here on Ukrainian Spaces a lot, but 
also something that we do not discuss very often is how the same conversation is happening within Ukraine and among Ukrainians, basically how Ukrainians discover their roots, reconnect them, with them, and even decolonize their own views of uh, our history, our identity, of what is happening. Is it something that you've been also uh, kind of curious recently, or maybe you have any personal story to share how your views have been changing and become decolonized in a way in the last 84 days? Yes, absolutely. So I think um, I just want to mention that I think in general, decolonization usually follows some kind of similar patterns, right? Like there are certain things that you can you can usually um, point out certain patterns, things that will happen, there are theories about it, you know. Uh, but I think what is a bit, what makes things much more complicated for us is A, we are still in a very active phase of war, and that is usually not the time when these reflections happen, but it's, you know, it's just kind of, it's a train and it's going. And so we have to do these processes kind of simultaneously. And um, it's, I think a lot of people, including a lot of Ukrainians, are only now beginning to realize that colonialism is a lens to view Ukraine and other post-Soviet countries through. And I think that leads to a lot of difficulties that creates a lot of confusion. And it's much less obvious than in some other cases where you look, you know, at like traditional, let's say, a settler overseas colonies and colonizers, where it's like, it's very clear that this is what's happening here. Well, here, I think both us and foreigners are only now kind of coming to, to terms with what's going on. What is important for me, but also in general, is that it's an ongoing process, right? So it's kind of an ongoing effort of looking at your own views, ideas, beliefs, values and kind of reassessing them every once in a while because we keep learning things and I think we keep discovering that we have these things deeply rooted somewhere inside us and it mm. might not be very obvious like I was thinking earlier today that uh, as I was thinking about uh, about our conversation I was thinking that it's kind of like misogyny you know that it's it's not something that you are immune to if you are in the oppressed group. Instead, it's something that you can carry inside you because society carries it inside you. And so you yeah. don't realize you don't realize that you might have, let's say using the example of misogyny, you might not realize that you have some misogynistic views, especially if you're a woman, you're like, well, I'm a woman, I cannot hate women. But in fact, it happens very often. These things are ingrained. And I think it's really important to kind of keep looking at it. And I would say for, for Ukrainians, for instance, uh, certainly there is this kind of inferiority complex that has been cultivated in us for hundreds of years by Russia. And I think a lot of people are only now 
starting to realize you know that um we're cool yeah. <laughs> so i think that yeah. that's the internalized colonialism that we carry within ourselves one of my most uh, favorite examples is my passport i you know i travel used to travel a lot especially before the pandemic but now as well and uh one of the things that i've never understood like why in every situation when i'm crossing a border at passport control i was kind of hiding my passport and i wasn't very comfortable you know putting it out there so people see that this is a ukrainian passport i'm ukrainian and uh only recently i kind of realize that this is one of the manifestation of inferiority that was conditioned by Russian colonialism to generations of Ukrainians not being proud about who you are at all even in these kind of weird um uh random situations so maybe you can share some of the examples how it manifests in your own life this uh, decolonization process that we're going through i went to germany for my studies i did my bachelor's at an international university in germany and i came there convinced that i was probably like one of the dumbest people who got in that year you know because it's it's quite a prestigious university there are people from international schools who had done their international exams and ibs and all that and i came from school number 2 in Chennai and so i was sure that i was worse off than many people there some parts of that were true you know at the beginning certainly some people could write a better essay than me but i quickly discovered that when it came to let's say having a political discussion and holding views that are somewhat more complex or even opposing to each other at the same time i did quite better i think it can be it can be very difficult for someone who has not had the experiences that most of ukrainians have had to be able to hold ideas that don't all nicely align into one neat box um together and i think for me yeah that was that was a moment when i realized you know coming from where i come from it gives me an advantage for the way in which i see the world and the ideas that i'm able to like capture and hold in my mind at the same time yeah 100% it's like that meme uh, what's your superpower i'm ukrainian that's kind of the vibe we're all in yes. at the moment i think i i also like mine is related to our our um our session that we had last week about language for me it's something i don't know like i i i realize i fully acknowledge that the way that i feel about the language that i speak has so much to do with russian like colonialism and imperialism because and 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 you know like you said with misogyny and things like that it's not that we're immune to that uh you know as women um but it's something that we like acknowledge and we need to work towards understanding and and sort of expelling from our psyche so for me there's some i i still up until this day there's that's like there's something with language and and sometimes i just don't i don't know i i'm that's why i'm like proactively every single new ukrainian person i meet i either speak english or ukrainian 
because I'm that's like my way of actively trying to fight against this almost I want to say disease that's been unleashed on us by centuries of making us think that speaking Ukrainian made you less than um, everyone else but uh, thank you so much for your example as yeah. well and I, I and I think uh, I, uh, another powerful point from it that reminds me of um, something that we also mentioned before that for a lot of Ukrainians uh, discovering their roots and discovering their history even within a family it's kind of a, a an everyday act of investigative journalism because a lot of truths and a lot of facts were uh, concealed hidden erased through uh, uh, through decades and centuries and uh, this is this does not make any uh, job of discovering your your identity easy and uh, it's just I remember it today very vividly when I start reading this uh, report about Russians in Mariupol going uh, through libraries, at least those that uh, stay uh, more or less intact, and uh, taking out and destroying all um, textbooks on Ukrainian history, which is something that, again, is happening not for the first time. Uh, in Ukrainian history, and Russians would do that uh, through many iterations of Russian colonialism. But again, seeing it happening in 2022, it's kind of a powerful reminder that multiple generations of Ukrainians left through complete cultural historical erasure through these simple acts of just, you know, destroying books that would carry our ancestral truths and historical truths. And it's Keep, keeps happening today. Uh, it's uh, it's completely mind boggling why uh, the world keeps allowing Russia to do that. Not only with Ukraine, but you know, with so many other nations, uh, colonized nations as well. So yeah, Sasha, I wanted to maybe ask you a follow up in terms of explaining even within Ukraine, where do you feel like something that we're still lacking, uh, some kind of a, a form of expression that the society lacks when it comes to the process of decolonization. Uh, whether the problem may be that we know so little of our history sometimes, or maybe there's not enough outlets that do that kind of educational stuff. What do you think is uh, something that we're really missing at the moment? So I think that's a great question. Thank you. Um, I think what you said about rediscovering our roots extends much broader because it's not only that our history and identity have been systematically erased they've also been altered you know it's almost it's almost like like they've been messed with and i think there's a lot of work that we need to do and i think we will keep kind of discovering new new and new things that have to be deconstructed. What comes to mind to me now is also this um, division between the West and the East, the Western Ukraine and the Eastern Ukraine, which I think has also been like uh, largely fabricated by Russia. And that is something that I didn't used to think about. In fact, that is something that I was... Um, a supporter of, you know, not an active supporter of, but uh, 
kind of a victim of if i don't think that's a good word to use but you know i think i carried this idea as well and i think in fact if you look a bit deeper you realize that that idea carries the same purpose as many russian actions do and that is division and destabilization of a place and i think that idea has largely been put into our heads so i think that's something that we will have to deal with and then hmm, sorry yeah yeah no something we'll we'll have to keep working on for a very long time yeah because i think we we now have also you know despite the horror and despite the very exhausting fact that we have to do this now at the same time with the war still going on i think we also have a unique opportunity to like totally reimagine this and you see the unity that we have and you see the insane bravery of ukrainians everywhere in ukraine and it gives a way i think for shaping a new identity that does not have this division in it at all it's not even i think like it's not even a component it doesn't have to be there and i think we have a chance to achieve that You know, it's also like going back to the post I made about Ukrainian culture and like from Kalush, all the elements that they did. When I was putting it together and I was like researching all of the different like Bukovinsky, Keptar and like Hutsulsky, this and, you know, all these like references from Western Ukraine. I had this thought for a second in my head being like, is this my culture or am I like, or is this like the Western Ukraine culture that I'm not part of and then I was like wait a second it's Ukrainian culture this is exactly my point yeah this is exactly my point and I think these are things that did not just happen organically you know I think these are things that just like so many other purposeful actions have had a purpose over decades and decades um, to to create this division to create this lack of knowledge to make sure that you don't identify with it different parts of your country and i think we have a good chance to to overcome that right now yeah so this is a perfect bridge into my next question to you which is our favorite question all the time what do you think and what does it what does being ukrainian mean to you and what do you think being ukrainian means more broadly or should mean what has happened so far um and what i hope will continue to happen is that being Ukrainian has been a really liberating and empowering experience, despite the horror that it has been as well. I think for me personally, it I have been proud to be Ukrainian for a long time, but I was, I guess, privileged enough for some years for it to not have to be kind of like the central part of my identity. And now... I think for obvious reasons, for many of us, it kind of becomes the main thing. And I think there can be a lot of pressure associated with it. You know, I think as we speak about Ukrainian spaces and giving voices to Ukrainians or amplifying the existing voices of Ukrainians, I think there can be this pressure to perform, to represent all of Ukraine 
to say something smart every time you open your mouth. And I think it doesn't have to be that way at all. You know, when when you invited me here, I kind of got really nervous and I was like, I don't know if I should accept this, you know, and will I have things to say? And then I thought, no, <laughs> I will do this because I think we we get to at least enjoy this freedom right now, which is to be ourselves, to have our spaces, to talk freely, to explore who we are. And yes, we now have an audience and that's good. We deserve one. We have smart things to say, but sometimes it doesn't have to be, you know, like, I don't know, uh, Europeans or US Americans are saying stupid things on the internet all day, every day. And we can too. It's a bit weird. I don't know if that makes sense. But it's 100%. this like kind of liberation that I feel around it. If before yeah. I felt more of this pressure to represent and say something smart, now I feel like we just kind of get to be ourselves and we get to figure out what that means for us. Yeah, it probably also comes from the the same colonialism uh, conditioned inferiority complex, right? When exactly. You, when in every room, in every conversation, and God, I probably did like thousands of public talks by by now. But every time, I I would feel a lot of pressure because you kind of feel like you have to perform much better than anyone else because. Uh, for the simple reason that there are not so many of us are allowed to have those spaces. Not so many of us are allowed to claim those platforms. And when we have these rare chances to do, there's so much pressure on you because, I mean, you got to perform and you got to like pack your, pack your message because you will also not be allowed to talk indefinitely. <laughs> You'll probably have much smaller space and much less of a time to convey your message than everyone else uh, just for the simple fact that you're Ukrainian and uh, your um, your voice is less value. And uh, sure, I, I do hope so this will change um, because God, this is too much pressure all the time, even these days. But uh, something that also is not being kind of addressed and i think the terrific topic even by ukrainians is everything that is revolt with uh, ukrainian um um ukrainian partisan movement during world war ii and bandera and our war flag uh, black and, and red and i know that it's very uncomfortable uh for many ukrainians uh question to discuss just for the for the uh, simple issue that is has been hijacked by Russian propaganda and is being used and abused against us. But also maybe, I mean, feel free to pass on it, but maybe you have some ideas about how do you deal with questions like that, that were heavily hijacked by Russian uh, propaganda and Russian colonial propaganda. And how do we effectively reclaim it and tell our truth and express what we want to express about our own history, even if, you know, for some reason it's not black and white. Right. So it it's not black and white. And I think what matters the most is that we have these conversations because I think mm. what has happened as a, as a result of Russian propaganda and all of all of these 
events is that it's used as an instrument against us by people who have nothing to do with this and wouldn't have even known ever in their lives who Bandera was, but now they do and they want to ask you, what do you think? And like, I think we don't owe answers to them. I think we owe answers to ourselves. Do we, do we know our history? Do we know why OWN even had to exist? Were there Nazis in there? You know, what were the choices that were made and why? And I think there, again, like I was saying before, you know, um, it's not like we will always say something smart. It's very possible that people will not have the knowledge. My own knowledge of Ukrainian history should be a lot better than it is. And people will say things that are wrong or that are not the most intelligent things they've ever said. And I think... It's totally fine and it's part of the process. But I think what's really important is making sure that this is kind of happening on, on, on our own terms. And I'm not sure how to do that practically without mm. being rude to other people. But <laughs> one thing one thing that I found useful like in in general is pointing out the reason why someone is asking that question you know like mm. are they actually genuinely curious about let's say an event in ukraine or a party in ukraine or a person in ukraine and the complexities around it or did they read an article that said that we have nazis in ukraine and if they did then they have a lot of work to do and a lot more reading to do before we can continue that conversation you know? yeah right yeah this and is very a- smart and also, like as a as both you and Maxim, professional researchers, first thing you go is go do is go to the source of wherever these things are coming from, which is great, and I think everyone should do. And the other thing is like, let's turn this around on the people that ask us these things. Do they know as much as we do about you know Nazis in their country and whatever else and history and so on and so forth? Um, yeah, and who has funded their rising far right parties in the last thirty years? Exactly. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was in Ukraine. Um, <laughs> I think we have a couple more minutes left and we have still some time with Sasha. But Sasha, what would you sort of like to, if there's another one point that you would like our audiences to go away with, uh, sort of an education piece uh, for the future on the war in Ukraine, what would you like them to remember from our conversation today? Sorry that if that's too much of a open-ended question, but I'm sure there's something um, that's been also like my question before, annoying you. Um, let me... Ooh, I have a cop-out. I read an article <laughs> by Timothy Snyder today. A uh, recent one that just came out in The New Yorker a couple of days ago. And it said that... It's a very much historical article on the, on the history of Ukraine and kind of explaining why this war is a colonial war but it also said something that gave me pause and it ties i think neatly with the things that we've discussed earlier today and it said something like if we are going to maintain democracies in the 21st century we're gonna have to accept the complexities that they come with and i think it's like it's a thought to keep in mind with regard to what we said about things being black and white and 
context mattering and listening to people who are at the source of the things happening. Sasha, I wanted to to wrap up uh, to ask you a final uh, question is about because I know that you share very often times causes for fundraising and pointed out to places where people can donate or um, you know amplify some fundraising calls. Is there something you would like to share? Um, something that people should pay attention or some platforms that they should definitely check out. So this is your opportunity to do that. Please do. I have come to understand that kind of the more directly you can give right now the better so if you if you have friends like people you know personally and you see that they are fundraising i would say donate if you can usually that help goes like directly where it's needed without the risk of like getting lost or going somewhere else or getting stuck with some bureaucracy um that was my experience with some of my own fundraisers where things were bought, you know, immediately, like while we were still raising money and 24 hours later, they were already with the people. I was fundraising the other day for a thermal imaging camera for my uncle and he has it. <laughs> the unit received it yesterday, which was less than 24 hours after we finished the fundraising. And I think it's, it's, it's just very efficient. And um, I think Your uncle save life. Sorry? Your uncle in the front line. Yes, unfortunately. Yes. Um, and I think save life, is always a good idea as well. They are extremely efficient in the way they, they manage their money. I would say, yeah, generally, if you can give locally and directly, that would be my advice. Thank, thank you so you. much. It was super nice to have you here with us. Um, thank you once again for taking your time out to talk to us. I hope that everyone else here will follow you as well on Twitter and on Instagram, where Sasha does a lot of her work on educating audiences and fundraising. And um, that some of you will come back to listen to Ukrainian Spaces again. And Maxim, if you wanted to remind everyone once again about our Patreon yeah. and support. Yeah, Sasha, thank you very much. Thank you. I wanted to remind everyone else uh, about the podcast, um, that these broadcasts now uh, now recorded and being uploaded as podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts with the same name, Ukrainian Spaces, spelled together. And uh, please also listen, subscribe, but most importantly, rate them. Rate them like there is no tomorrow, because this is how we... Uh, make sure that Ukrainian voices trend online and in podcast platforms as well. And also, if you stand our shows, uh, there is a simple way to support us uh, is through our Patreon uh, space. Um, you can become our sponsor. We're 100% independent volunteer effort run by two Ukrainians. So we do need uh, any bit of support, no matter how small it is. And also, this is not a charity. You get a lot of bonus content in advance, but most importantly, you also get for some of the tiers front row seat when it comes to asking questions, uh, whether uh, indirectly or directly during the broadcast. So we always love and welcome our sponsors and Patreon fam 
to join our uh, shows. Again, uh, we'll talk soon. Um, stick, stick around, use the hashtag Ukrainian spaces to keep up with the show, but also share your experiences, especially if you're Ukrainian. And meanwhile, uh, thank you so much, Sasha and Val, and Slava Ukraini. Heroem Slava. Heroem Slava. Thank you so much. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.